Would you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18, which is page 52 if you're uh, using one of the Bibles provided for you. And I'll begin uh, with a confession a little bit. I have all this Christmas in my heart. I imagine many of you are uh, ready to talk about Christmas. And I'm in the last sermon of a series on discipleship that's very nuts and boltsy, wire diagrams. So... This is where we are. Uh, travel along with me in this. Uh, we'll be in Matthew uh, next week and the week after and Christmas Eve. Uh, but I, I want to end well and, uh, and bring closure to what we've been talking about. If you're here and, uh, and you rarely come to church, you know, maybe you came to see a grandchild or something. Um, I don't want this message to be lost on you because we're going to be talking about what God says about how the church should organize itself. So maybe that sounds, might sound to you like inside baseball. Um, what I do want to share with you is, uh, especially if you're outside the faith and you've, and you've wondered, you know, Christians, if, if they have this God, they should be different. I'm here to agree with you. We should be different. Uh, we should be radically different. Um, and so, uh, and that starts inside the body of Christ, which is why we're talking about some of these things. So at least I can assign some, at least maybe you can appreciate why we, we, would, we would want to care about these things. Okay, well, this morning we're going to be talking about uh, biblical, uh, how God organizes leadership and shepherding in his church. And um, I'll, I'll end with uh, kind of, I don't want to end on a cliffhanger, but just saying, pointing at places in our current structure of a fellowship that, that are not setting us up well to continue to grow faithfully. And, you know, I won't have a great, I don't, I'm not giving you some great answer except to say that, you know, I think I'm very optimistic as to uh, where we would go and, and the things we can do. Uh, but I just want to, I want to share these things with you so that you can, you can travel along throughout the year as we try to kind of uh, improve ourselves. So I'll start with this. Uh, two gentlemen wrote a book. It was called Trellis and Vine. Marshall and Payne were their names. And in this book, uh, the driving image of this book is a vine. And they talk about the church as a vine, which makes sense. In John, Christ says he's the vine and we're the branches. And so their, their image was that uh, the Christians in Christ comprise the vine. And that's the church. And they were emphatic in their book about saying uh, the church is a living thing. It's not walls. It's not a cathedral. It's not a liturgy. It's not something we do. It's not a program. It's not a good website. It's none of those things. It's people joined together in Jesus Christ. And that is the church. And that's what the church is. And so ultimately, anything we're doing when we're thinking of the church should be to improve the health of the vine. But they said a good vine needs some kind of trellis to grow on. In other words, every church needs some level of structure some level of organization to ensure for a healthy vine. That, and that was their book. Their book was, uh, you, you, you need to respect the heart of the church and what it is, which is people in Jesus Christ, and you need to orient around that, but you need some level of organization so that the vine's just not you know, lying on the ground, not being fruitful. Likewise, though, you don't want to you know, you be a gardener to show off your garden and bring someone in the backyard and say, look at my trellis. Look how beautiful this lattice work is. It's so as though, 
you know, it's, you're overly structured and you have this little sapling or seedling of a vine barely breaking forth, but you have all of this structure. Another way of saying it is the bigger the body gets, so do the bones get bigger, right? Your bones grow with the body. As we get larger, we need uh, some attention to how we, we structure ourselves. And so I'll say, uh, just to give you a kind of open the window into the structure of our church, our church has, possesses the classic uh, Baptistic structure you'd find in America, which is when it established itself at 50 people, it had a pastor, and then it has a structure to get deacons. One deacon for every 25 members. So in this church, there's 12 deacons, 10 serving here, two serving down at the Loma campus. We meet together, the pastors and the deacons, monthly to pray, seek the Lord, and talk about issues in the church. But that's the classic structure is pastor and deacons. And that works great. It works super well, especially at 50 people. 50 people, I don't even know if you need deacons because the pastor is so close to the fellowship. If you were ever in a small church, you can appreciate this, that the pastor's right there and and especially if he's a full-time vocational minister, well, he has so much time, so much of his time because there's very little trellis in a church that small, right? It's just people. And so he'll, not only will he do your funeral, but he'll go to your uncle's funeral just to make sure that, make sure you feel loved, right? And because he'll remember one time in coffee that your uncle, your uncle's wife didn't know the Lord, so he thought, yeah, maybe I'll go. Because he just has 50 people, right? He won't just visit you in the hospital. If you, if you told him that your mother-in-law was in the hospital and that you didn't really get along with your mother-in-law, but... So you'd be the wrong person, but he'd be thoughtful of, but mother-in-law doesn't know Jesus. You know what? I'll stop by. Because it's 50 people. If the pastor has a shepherding heart, that, that's attractive to him. But when it's not 50 people anymore, there's, it's 150, it's 200, now it's 250, now it's 300, now it's 350. As it grows, the pastor gets more and more distanced from the daily needs of the fellowship. So now he's only doing your funeral and he's only going to hospitals in crisis and really those, those kind of heart of shepherding ideas are kind of falling out of his grip because you double the size of the fellowship and you more than double the work for the, the shepherd because not only does he have to care for twice as many people but he has to care for the trellis that cares for twice as many people. So there's a distance that's growing. Likewise, with deacons, and I'm just sharing the reality of our kind of model of church so that you'll appreciate uh, this is worth talking about. In our kind of church, we nominate deacons at large, which means the whole membership nominates deacons. And they nominate deacons every year. Every May, we nominate three or four deacons as three or four rotating off. We nominate three or four to take their place. And if they were going to be the primary caretakers of the fellowship, we would say, this is what you would say, and you can do this in a 100-person church. You can say each deacon should have families so that all the families in the church are accounted for in the deacons. You can do that with two deacons or three deacons or four deacons, five deacons. You might be able to do it with six deacons. There gets to be a point where 
You could spend two months going through a spreadsheet for 350 people to say you got this. Because we don't just care for the membership. We care for people coming, which is bigger than the membership. You, know, you could spend two months building this house of card, Excel spreadsheet matrix on care where you know, the, the older crowd in the church, the veteran members, there's a, a veteran deacon who's caring for them. Oh, it's elegant, right? Because he's been with them for 20 years and they know, they, they have phone numbers memorized. And, you know, and the, this is a middle of life deacon and he's with the middle. Of, you have all of that done and you, it takes you two or three months to get it done and then you get to May and four of your deacons rotate off. And instead of having the 65-year-old deacon among the 60-some-year-old members, that 35-year-old deacon rotates into his place. You just knock the whole house of cards down and start over. And you do that two or three years in a row, and you're like, we can't do this ever again. It's not doing anything. So as the church grows, what ends up happening is that the pastor and the deacons, if you don't do something, if you don't do something about a perfect church model for 50 or 100 people, what will end up happening is that very church model will distance the pastor and deacons from the fellowship. And what's happened in our country, in kind of the age that I've grown up in the church, is the church has grown and grown and grown, and the pastor and the deacons have grown farther and farther away from the fellowship. The pastor works only on his first calling, which is the message and the Sunday service. He's become Sunday service-oriented or visionary. And, uh, and then the deacons become like a board of trustees, which both of two are becoming more and more disconnected from the fellowship. And there's this crisis of care and what we do, what we have done for the past 30 years in the church and what half the books in the Christian bookstore say is, is what you need to do is small groups. Just do small groups. And I'm here this morning just to open the word with you and say, I'm not so fast. I don't, that's not good enough. So if you will, uh, if you, you might already have me beat to Exodus 18. I want to start in the Old Testament scriptures and just establish a basic framework for the trellis and then move into a New Testament passage and kind of show a more equivalent version of the same thing and then draw a few conclusions as to why can't, why can't if we're going to just grow, why can't we just grow with the same model, bigger and bigger and bigger, and then institute small groups under us, which is what every big church is telling us. So you're wondering why I'm preaching it is because it's the standard operating procedure in many churches uh, that are growing. Okay, here in Exodus 18 is a visitation of, by, of Moses. Moses' father-in-law comes into town and visits. Now, they've crossed the Red Sea. They're free from the Egyptians. Uh, but they haven't fully become uh, kind of encoded as the people of God. And Jethro pays a visit to Moses And this is what happens. I'm going to pick up in the 13th verse. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. 
Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about his statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. And they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands and of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses. But any smaller matter, they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Okay, now what is not equivalent in this passage? I would say the first thing is is that uh, pastors are not Moses. So I'm not going to try to give you the pretense that the pastor is equivalent to Moses. He's not. When Moses died, this form of structure remained in place and continued to be used by the people. Uh, This idea of judges serving. Um, But... Pastors are not Moses. That's the first thing that's not equivalent. The second thing that's not very equivalent to how we experience church right now is you're looking at it here in Scripture when it's a theocratic system uh, that defines their whole culture. So this, what you kind of read, is almost a judicial system. We, you might think, well, that sounds like our court system. And it is our court system, except that our court system lives in the secular realm. And among the people of God in the Old Testament, the, their entire culture was a theocratic system. So the court system was part of the life of the Lord. So what we've done is we have, as the church has participated with secularism, we've, we've allowed institutions outside the church to serve a governing role among all people. And I say it that way because I don't want you to look at the Exodus example as ancient and outmoded or I don't want you, the, your ears, which I think were kind of negatively, negatively disposed to the, a phrase like theocratic system because of present examples, to think that this is not in somehow God's will. You'll see examples of it. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle writes to the church and he says, I cannot believe that there's two members in the same church who are dealing with a matter outside in the courts. He says, how embarrassing. You can't deal with your own dirty laundry as a church? Like one member suing another member, leaving, leaving the body of Christ, leaving the system of, of God's people to go out and say true judgments and discernment is going to be found in the secular courts. Paul says, that's not right. 
Bring it back in the church and work on it. Work it out. And so I just want you to know that the principle carries and is shape, it shapes itself. I'm not sure that we, in our present state, are living out the principles as well. So our present state may be more critiquable than this is. Right now, if the pastor said something in a church he didn't like, you just go to another church. That's the modern day answer, which is certainly not biblical. But it's cultural. So, given those things that are not equivalent, what do we see in here that is uh, really worth holding on to as far as organization? And here they are. First of all, we see that Jethro's recommendation for care cares in both directions. He says in verse 17 and 18, what you're doing is not good. You and the people, you hear it? You and the people will wear yourselves out. It's not good. So this fix to care is not simply to care for Moses, nor is it to care for the people, it's to care for the whole group. After that, we see that the solution establishes some soft, uh, some roles. It begins to establish an awareness of responsibility and accountability. So he says to Moses, this is in the following verses, 19 and 20 and 21, he says to Moses, listen, you'll still be responsible for trying to judge against the really difficult ones, the ones where the word of God and his statutes don't give commentary, you can take those questions straight into the tabernacle, into the presence of God and go, what about that? So on the big ones, you're the supreme, you're not the supreme judge, right? You are the supreme plaintiff who goes into the judge to find God's answer. So he says, that's, Moses, that'll be still your job. He says, likewise, you will intercede for the people with the Lord. So you're going to seek God's will on behalf of the people, and you will still remain responsible to teach them your statute, God's statutes, laws, and truths. All of that is still left with Moses. Moses, you're still the primary teacher, and you will intercede for the people. But on these issues of daily discernment and Christian living, let's find able men who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, who the fellowship, the Jewish people would go, I'll trust his, even if it's not going to be on my side, I know there wasn't anything polluting his decision. That's the idea. And so you find that they've they've separated certain duties, right? On these small daily matters, let these chiefs of appropriate numbers handle them. And you can imagine that a chief of thousands would be more capable of handling the truths of God than chief of ten. That just goes without saying. But that's the idea, okay? Now what I want to do is I want want you to move over to Acts 6, and I want to look at um, a a new beginning for the people of God. So Exodus 18 was a beginning for the people of God. They were right out of Egypt. Acts 6 is a beginning for the people of God. They're right out of Pentecost. They're just now becoming the church, okay? This is kind of a birth of the church moment. It's page 782. And we come to this passage classically to talk about deacons. This is the first passage in Scripture that institutes the the office of the deacon. But what I want you to look more broadly at as we read it is similarities of purpose with Exodus, what, what you see in Exodus and what did God's kind of was saying about the whole way the church is ordered? Let me read here, chapter 6, verse 1 of Acts. Now in these days, 
when the disciples were increasing in number, by the way, let me just stop there. This is a problem that comes because of growth, okay? Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's some big words. Let me... Hellenists are uh, non, not ethnically Jewish members of the church. So the, the Greek faction in the church was noticing that their widows were going without when the Jewish widows, the ethnically Jewish widows, were being cared for. So there's an injustice in the fellowship. That's what's happening. Verse 2, and the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They set before the apostles. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Now let me just comment real briefly on verse 7. I think verse seven's there as a way of affirming the actions taken in the church. The church didn't have a lot of organization. It was the apostles preaching the word. And what happened is it grew beyond, apparently, it grew beyond a number where, where things could be just, you could just trust that things were happening well. Okay? It grew to where factions could be alive in the church. Entire ethnic factions could be present in the church and have sway and pull. You can imagine all of the things that you and I see when you climb deep into church are present in this sort of church. And they say what we need is we need an accountable office beneath us, a group beneath the apostles who will kind of execute the duties as a faithful men full of the spirit who are without prejudice, kind of haters of bribes. I mean, do you, can you see the equivalency as you found in Exodus 18? It's, it's, it's pretty striking, actually. Find men who, who are trustable and place them over the fellowship in such a way that they'll care for the daily needs and justice and care of the fellowship. Why? Because the apostles' first call is the teaching of the word and of interceding for the people before the Lord. Going to the Lord, finding direction from the Lord. That's, sort of, that's what the apostles are doing is prayer and the teaching of the word. And this is where we get deacons. From this point on, deacons were a standard role in the church, an office of the church. They were an official part of the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul writes to Timothy and says, here's how you need to structure the church, He talks about the qualifications for pastors or shepherds or elders. That's the other office of the church, shepherds. Once once the apostles begin to, well, once the faith gets out from underneath the feet of the apostles, the office of shepherd or elder or overseer immediately rises up as people who teach the apostles' teachings. So 
The apostles have an authority of unto themselves before the Lord to interpret the word. The, apostles, the pastors and elders and overseers teach Christ based upon what the apostles taught. That's the difference. That's why apostles have gone on, but pastors remain. As pastors are not originating the truth of God, they're regurgitating the truth of God. And so you find two offices that come out of this. Is you, have, you have deacons that you see here in Acts 6, and then you have pastors or overseers or shepherds or elders. That All those words are not the same word in Greek, but they refer very often to the same office. And you find teachings and qualifications for them. So in 1 Timothy 3, here are the teachings of what a shepherd ought to look like or an elder, and here are the teachings of what a deacon ought to look like. You have these teachings. In, in Titus, you have here's what an elder ought to be. In 1 Peter 5, you have uh, instructions to elders. You find, you find elders and deacons in various places in the Scripture as the offices that God has ordained for the good keeping of the church. You may be wondering, so why does this matter? Well, those are the two offices God's given us. Now, I should say, God expects all of his children to behave in a way that's edifying to the Lord and building up of one another. So the basic charges that come to pastors or apostles or even to Moses, all of the basic teachings that come to these great leaders in the church are generally true about all believers. The question isn't what are we supposed to do as a church. The question is how, do, how and around whom did God organize the church? and organized the leadership of the church, and he's established it for pastors and for deacons. So this brings us back to our church, or our church setting, or our church culture, which is this. As churches, okay, and this is from experience and observation and from study, and I think you will see the same thing or you'll have the same experience. In churches like ours that grow, what invariably happens is the lone shepherd... Um, grows distanced from the fellowship. And even if you hire in other shepherds, like an associate pastor or an executive pastor, they're not seen the same way. They are, and we oftentimes in our culture make them pastors of ministries, not pastors of people. You notice that? Take a ministry, not take people. So what that means is, is the pastors are so far away that the organ, the trellis is demanding work by itself. So we grow, and pastors are getting distanced away from the fellowship, okay? And even the deacons are becoming distanced from the fellowship because we're, at, we're calling on them at large, and they're not, they don't have assigned families. They're not connected necessarily to families. And so churches that get bigger and bigger, I'm saying a perfectly suitable and good structure for a small church begins to actually displace the primary shepherds from the fellowship as it grows, I'm saying our, our church structure, which says the whole church nominates deacons at large, that actually becomes problematic when the whole church doesn't even know the deacons. I'm saying we find ourselves in the classic medium-sized church position, which is if, if there was a discipling issue in your life that was present, you would think, well, I don't want to call Pastor John, he's busy, and I don't know my deacon. And those are the two things that God instituted. And that just isn't right. 
Like, I don't even have to have a full-blown fix to point at that and go, well, we, if God instituted those two offices for the primary care of the fellowship, why are we getting them so far away? But that's what happens. And it, it's actually, it's like a self-backscratching idea. Because people are messy anyway, so if a church gets big and you get far away from them, there's something in the human nature of a pastor that's not fighting that very much. Like, if you can concentrate on Sunday and preach well on Sunday and you get all the positive feedback from Sunday, you, you, am I, I'm tipping the car, I'm showing my hand, okay? Because my hand is like so many others. And so this distance grows and, and who's really caring? The roles are challenging, right? If a member comes in and the marriage is challenged and... It's, it's just on the rocks. We don't even have to know what's happening there. It's just on the rocks. Who's accountable for that? Who's accountable for that marriage? Now, there may be wonderful Christians around that couple that are caring. We, we should hope that, right? Because here we're making disciples, not simply believers. So the hope is, is that it's organically happening inside the vine. I'm saying, what about our trellis is saying somebody has to know those people and care? I'm saying... What worked when we were small is actually causing problems now. Another thing that, that is classic about our structure is that it's, uh, it has a singular pastor in mind, not theologically, but just habitually. So our constitution, by the way, it pastor this, the pastor shall, the pastor shall, the pastor shall, it's a singular word. Even though in the Bible it is almost always, I'm inclined to say, exhaustively plural. Churches had pastors and elders and overseers. Even Jerusalem, when they had the apostles, also had elders. Okay? So there's overwhelmingly in the Bible, there's a sense of plurality, which makes me feel like care is important. But our culture is accustomed to the singularity of a pastor. And we're slow to call more pastors because our culture thinks we have to pay them full-time benefits which makes a medium or small church very reticent. It's a huge step. So instead, we say, let's expect more from the pastor or expect less from the church. I'm just showing you ways that the way we think of church can actually, as we grow, become problematic. So what do big churches do? So church breaks the threshold of 300, they break the threshold of 400, 500, 600. There's great growth but real care is not happening, uh, or at least real care is not being accountable. People do not know their roles they are serving in. So it's happening, it's just happening in an organic, earthy way, or it's not happening. We're not assessing it, we're not dealing with it, okay? Then there's an eye-opening moment where we think, good grief, this has happened in all these big major churches around, they, 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 they've written papers, they've written massive tomes on this of why they are not discipling well, and their answer has been, we need to do small groups. Small groups is what will happen. In fact, Jesus had a small group. Twelve disciples. And there's the magic number. Let's do twelve disciples. The challenge is, is most small group leaders are not Jesus. What I'm saying is, is could you have a wonderful small group? I don't doubt it for a second. If the shepherd of your small group was a qualified elder, 
biblically qualified. I'm not saying humanly qualified. I'm not. If he had a sense of calling to you to say, a sense in his heart of, I am, God's looking to me to shepherd these people well, I don't doubt for a second you'd have a good life group. Right now, the tendency to manage a good life group is to exercise problems, <laughs> to preserve the feeling of goodness, not truly shepherd people towards Christ. And so what we've done, and this, this is it, this is your Christmas gift to me, is just to listen to this and think of it one more time before February. I'll feel blessed from you. I believe that process of the pastor gets far away from the fellowship, the deacons get far away from the fellowship, and we institute small groups and we say, we're going to be a church of small groups and that's where discipling is going to happen. I believe that is creating a third office in the church that the Bible didn't admit. The Bible has pastors and deacons, has pastors and deacons, has pastors and deacons, which means that the, the roles and accountability of the fellowship should fall beneath, responsibly beneath pastors and deacons. It means it should matter. Now, for us, because of the way we elect deacons, it's a little bit disconnected. You're voting for people in the whole church. What's happened is we've, we've minimized ideas into small words where the Lord gave them to us for functionality. And we've created, and I'm not saying we, us only, I'm saying we, the Western Evangelical American Church, has said we're going to rely on small groups to do these things. But small groups are a ministry primarily of the willing, not the called and not necessarily the qualified. So you'll, this is why you have a great life group and a lame life group. This is this, it, because they're willing. And I think there's a place for life group. I think there's value in life group. So I'm not trying to blow it up. I'm saying we cannot relegate our expectation for true discipleship to happen in a place that is not being tended to or accounted to through the spiritual oversight of a shepherd or a deacon. That's all I'm saying. And I think we can do that. I think we can do that without a lot of change because I think our church has so many wonderful people in it. I think we just simply have a failure of accountability. Okay, I'll close with this passage and wish you a Merry Christmas. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You've been so good to me. Thank you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, Paul's going to use phrases here like evangelist, shepherd, teacher, prophet, These phrases are for roles, not so much offices. But I just want the the final verses of this fourth chapter to fall on you as a fellowship to remind you we're trying to make radical disciples of Jesus Christ here. And we're trying to foster in our hearts a discontent for wishy-washy, lukewarm faith. God has called us to be his children. How can we sing joy to the world and not be serious about the God who saved us. And so we're really trying to be faithful to God in the way we place ourselves beneath him so he can change us. Just listen to these words. This is such a great passage to talk about us beneath the Lord here. Verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says this, and he gave, or called in some translations, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what's happening here. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain 
to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a great sentence that we're trying to attain to the measure of the stature of Christ. That's like such a great phrase. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, in speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what we're trying to do. May God bless our efforts. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, you did send your son and we are joyful for that, Lord. And, and it was right for so much of this morning to resonate over the advent of Christ. But you have continued to build the body of Christ up in the church. Lord, and we recognize that you, you, you've chosen to use the church as your vehicle of grace to share across the world, Lord. And we, so we pray that we would do that well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.